Marwan Alni, climate change is a slow-moving global emergency. The coronavirus pandemic has moved with lightning speed. Maybe one global crisis can help us manage another. Sebastian Edwards is a professor and faculty director of global management at the UCLA Anderson School. Born in Chile, he has been with the World Bank. He's advised governments and multinational companies all over the world. He's a widely read columnist in both English and Spanish, and his latest book is American Default, about Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the Depression. He's here to talk about global management and the pandemic on this edition of UCLA Anderson's podcast, How the World Works. Good to have you with us. Warren, it's uh, great uh, to talk to you, as usual, Uh, this time keeping social distance, but uh, that's the way it is. Well, that is the way the world works at the moment. <laughs> so uh, we're doing it uh, as necessary. You're a student of leadership. Tell us about how leaders around the world have been challenged by the rapidity of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, it's, uh, it's been, as you say, rapid like a thunder. And many leaders were out of balance and uh, out of their depth. Different countries were facing different emergencies of sorts of their own, and all of a sudden the pandemic came. So if you think of Mexico, our country and our neighbor to the south, it was having a lot of problems of its own with a new president who AMLO, Andres López Obrador, trying to change uh, the direction of the government, move it towards more progressive type of policies, and then the pandemic comes. and. Frankly, he was not prepared, and uh, he's made a lot of blunders. Uh, If you go south, similar with uh, President uh, Jair Bolsonaro from Brazil. Uh, You go further south, Argentina just defaulted on its debt, or announced that it's defaulting on its debt. Chile, which uh, used to be the uh, superstar of Latin America, and maybe even of the emerging world, had a lot of political problems before the pandemic. So here we have, just focusing on, on Latin America, a world where every country had its own problems. And, and I didn't even mention Venezuela or Cuba, right? Uh, and then the pandemic comes. And, and it's been very, very difficult. Although we found some interesting positive signs, which we can talk about. I do want to talk about positive signs, but not just in South America, but around the world. Which leaders are providing examples for your students at UCLA Anderson? Well, um, it's a very short list, I think. But the one that we are looking at with greatest interest is Jacinta Arden from New Zealand for a number of reasons, including the fact that New Zealand handled the pandemic very well. It has been able to virtually eliminate new contagion. And uh, Jacinta, at the same time, was trying to move the country also in a different direction. The fact that she is very young and a young mother, and uh, she actually gave birth while being the prime minister, is very interesting and uh, I think that's illuminating. We're looking at her. Uh, We're looking at uh, Chancellor Angela uh, Merkel from Germany, who is in the last part of her cycle as a great leader of her country, but she has reacted in a very, very positive way and giving reassurance to German citizens. So I think that those are the two most important leaders that we are looking at. In addition to the leaders that you mentioned who aren't doing so well, 
What about the leader of the United States? It used to be the United States would lead the world in a situation like this. Well, um, uh, that is true. And one of the points that I've made, uh, Warren, in a couple of Zoom talks that I've given, that we don't have anyone else, maybe Dr. Fauci to some extent, but not quite, someone who reassures the population and that takes over and guides the response to the pandemic. And what I have in mind is the role that then-Secretary Herbert Hoover played in 1927 after the big Mississippi flood. And uh, he was so clearly in charge, so efficient, so hands-on, that that catapulted him into becoming the presidential candidate for the Republican Party and then president of the United States. So we go back not so long ago where we have a different type of calamity, but a response that came from one person that was quite dramatic. We don't see that in the U.S. And certainly the president with his contradictory uh, statements has, I think, introduced quite a bit of confusion. Does it help that he is blaming China? Well, I think that it doesn't help. On the other hand, it's not that surprising. A trademark of candidate Trump and then uh, President Trump has been to blame, quote unquote, the other, that other being always a foreigner, either a foreign company, a foreign country or foreign migrants for the ills of the United States. It's, it's not an unusual thing to do for politicians. Is the same stance that many populist leaders and nationalistic leaders have taken throughout history. And in fact, in the, all the research that I have done about populism, one of the most important characteristics of the populist leaders, be them in South America or in Europe or Asia, anywhere in the world, is this notion that it's us, the people, against them, and the them is mostly foreigners. You would not be surprised to find out that in the rest of the world, the foreigners that are often blamed are U.S. multinationals and the U.S. government itself, right? So the whole thing that gringo go home that we have seen through history in country after country, it's in a way a reflection of this quite common political way of handling this kind of crisis. And yet, America has been seen, at least in this country, as a leader of the world. I think that that's true in terms of international organizations, the UN and uh, others as well. How has that happened if, in fact, we are seen as them in a negative way in so many ways, in so many places? I think it's more complicated in the sense that those who have historically blamed the U.S., are the more uh, left-wing activists, and they tend to be very vocal. But if you go back in history, and the, um, as you know, the part of the world where I've done the most of my uh, research is Latin America. Vice President Nixon, when he was uh, President Eisenhower's uh, number two, went to South America and he had a lot of trouble. He couldn't speak. Eggs and tomatoes were thrown at him. Same thing happened to LBJ when he went to Asia. Uh, so it's politically uh, colored, right? At the same time, there is uh, recognition of American science, American uh, universities, such as UCLA, American ingenuity, American companies and technology have been uh, leading the world. So there is this combination that you, we've seen around the world.
You talked about South America. What about Africa? What's happening there? Africa, after a very long period where it did very poorly, in the last few years has done quite well. And we have seen a recovery in many countries. We have seen inflation coming down, incomes uh, stabilizing. I wrote a book not too long ago, published a book with Oxford University Press not too long ago about Tanzania uh, in East Africa. It grew for about 12 years at 7% per year, which is only slightly below China, although it started from a much lower situation. So Africa has done quite well. But in that process, it got into debt in a significant way. And now with the crisis, they cannot quite pay those debts. So there is a movement around the world that is geared either at uh, giving them some space so that they can pause and have a year or two where they don't have to pay any interest on their debt or a broader movement. And we don't know where it's going to go to just condone much of the debt in these very poor African countries. Aren't there countries in Africa where there are you know, three or five or 10 ventilators for the entire country, how are they going to be able to deal with the health effects of the pandemic? The data suggests that the contagions are lagging. They are, they are getting them, but they are coming behind. And one of the things, of course, that happened is that production of uh, respirators uh, has greatly increased. Most countries, they are trying to manufacture them at home and others are importing them from all over the world. So China which is where the bug originated, has now sort of turned the corner and they have started producing more and more ventilators. If you use one of those apps to track flights around the world, you'll find that there is quite a bit of traffic of cargo planes going to China to get respirators and they are being flown all over the world. So my guess is that that's what's going to happen with Africa. Now, whether they will have enough, um, I couldn't tell you. What if they don't? Well, uh, a lot of people are going to die. And the courageous, uh, brave health workers in Africa will have to face a dilemma that they are trained to face, but they hate doing it, which is known as the last bed dilemma. So if you have two people who urgently need to use the last bed in the hospital, who gets it? And there are moral philosophers in ethics and health who have dealt with this issue through the years. And there are protocols. Of course, doctors hate facing that situation, but it's something that they are prepared to do. And the whole notion, of course, um, Warren, as you know, of flattening the curve was to avoid facing that situation. A lot of those countries are former colonies. Uh, They even speak the languages of the countries that uh, colonized them. Do you see any effort on the part of those former colonializers who try to help uh, the countries that they effectively uh, looted of uh, resources for so many years? I think that there is a deep commitment in many cases. And I think, for instance, that the Macron government in France is deeply committed to the Francophone area in Africa. Through the years, they've provided a lot of economic assistance. They've supported the French Franc African zone of a common currency that was really uh, financed by the Bank of France. 
So I think that there are deep commitments in some cases. There are others where the links have become very weak because of the passage of time or the nature of the colonialism. So I don't think that Belgium is particularly helping the Congo or that the Netherlands is particularly assisting Indonesia. That's the impression that I have. I haven't looked at the date, but I do know that through the years, those links have become weaker in those countries. Belgium and the Congo, of course, totally severed. The Netherlands and Indonesia, they've been weakened. I assume that there is a preference in helping, but uh, nothing that would even get close to erasing the injustices of the colonial times. Is there anything, any chance of an international effort out of the UN, I guess that would be the obvious place for it to start, an international effort to help these nations out, if for no other reason than to try to avoid mass migration and perhaps even civil wars and wars against one another? Of course, there are lots of initiatives being pushed and some of them are moving. Now, the UN, as you know, is a political body uh, with very limited resources. Uh, The resources are at the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, the World Bank, where, as you pointed out at the top of of the show, where I worked as a chief economist for the Latin American region uh, some years ago, what we know as the regional development banks, the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank. So these are institutions that have funds and are moving quite quickly in an effort to help the poor countries. The IMF and the World Bank are also playing an important role of coordinating assistance to the African countries, in particular in the form of debt forgiveness or debt pause moratorium or standstill in the debt arena. The most intriguing proposition is one that has come from former Secretary of the Treasury, Larry Summers, from Gordon Brown in the UK and from other leaders, which is for the International Monetary Fund to issue $1 trillion dollars in a a sort of international money called special drawing rights and then allocate them for free to all the members of the International Monetary Fund. So if you go and look at that, it's a proposal that's been simmering. A much smaller effort along those lines was made in 2009 after the financial crisis. So they are trying to replicate that. I am very skeptical of that particular initiative, but what I'm trying to illustrate is that there are lots of initiatives uh, going around. After World War II, the United States had the Marshall Plan, and it helped both its allies and its enemies, of course, including Germany. Is there any chance that the United States might, in its own interests, to develop economy in the future and to try to avoid immigration, which has become such an issue in this country? Could we go back to another version of the Marshall Plan? We could, but I think it's going to be politically very difficult, Warren. And the the main problem If you go back to previous crises, including the Spanish influenza pandemic, what you have is that you could very easily divide the world into two buckets, losers and winners from whatever had happened before. So the Marshall Plan, as you pointed out, is a plan put together by the power 
who won the war. Yeah. So there was a winner, somewhere, a country that had come on, on top. The Spanish influenza, what is very interesting is that since it coincides with the end of the Great War, World War I, the records are meshed together and it's very difficult to figure out what was the reaction to the pandemic and what was the reaction to the war. Yeah. So let me give you an example. The fiscal plan, the rescue plan that Congress passed here in the U.S. a few weeks ago was $2.5 trillion. And then it was supplemented by another half a trillion dollars. So there we have $3 trillion in a government plan that is going to be financed by issuing treasury debt. Okay. Now, if you go back to 1918 in the U.S., what was happening, the Spanish influenza is raging. October of 1918 is the worst month in the pandemic. What's going on with the Treasury? Well, the Treasury is trying to sell liberty bonds to finance the war. So we don't know how much is done for the pandemic, how much is for the war, whether people were, what were people doing? So we have to figure that out to look at this. It's going to be very interesting. To go back to your question, I don't see a major Marshall Plan. Why? Because everyone has been affected by the COVID-19 as opposed to previous crises where you could single out someone who came up on top, who had in a way the moral obligation to step in and help those who had lost. Is the United States one of the losers? I think that we are not doing very well. The jump in unemployment claims to 30 million in a matter of three or four weeks is absolutely remarkable. If you go through the list of where people were employed before the crisis, and we did this in a course that we taught at uh, the Anderson School at UCLA, that uh, we immediately, when the pandemic came, we decided we're going to teach a course on the pandemic and the economic uh, response to it. And one of the first things I did teaching that course is go through the list of where people are employed. The number one sector is personal assistance. And those are accountants, um, yoga instructors, and so on and so forth. And, and then very high up there, of course, uh, hospitality. So we are being hit in a very dramatic way. Why? Because this is a crisis from a public health point of view that hits the service industry more than anything else, right? So manufacturing with modern robotics, you don't have people really working shoulder to shoulder and you can monitor them and they can wear masks, but you cannot do that in restaurants. You cannot do that in gyms. You cannot do that in movie theaters. I've heard the term helicopter used. What does that mean? Well, helicopter money is a term that has its origins in an article that the famous economist uh, Milton Friedman wrote in 1969. And uh, the idea is that the Fed prints money and drops it from a helicopter on people's backyards. Was he kidding? Was he joking about it? It was a pedagogical device. He was trying to illustrate what would be the effect of the Fed issuing a lot of money without any backing. And he said, let's imagine that the Fed chairman gets on a helicopter and does this. And the answer was that, well, people will get the money, will go and spend it. 
If we are in a normal economy where there is full employment and factories are producing at full capacity, as people spend this extra money that came from the helicopter, there will be pressure on prices and prices would go up and we would get inflation. So that was the point that Friedman was trying to make. And now what people are saying, and I think that there is a point to it, is that this is not a normal situation. Output has collapsed. And people are not getting paid because they have lost their jobs. And if you give them helicopter money, yeah, they will go out and spend it. And that will restore economic output rather than raise prices. And that's the big issue is whether we should do helicopter money. Legally, we cannot do it, but we can find alternative ways of of doing something similar. There are always ways of getting around the law, especially if both Congress and the uh, uh, administration uh, agree. Could helicopter money be an answer to what's happening internationally? Uh, No, the answer is no. And that's why I told you earlier that I was very skeptical about this notion of the IMF issuing the so-called special drawing rights, which are some kind of pseudo-international money. So the problem is this, Warren, if the IMF, which is an institution in Washington, D.C., has a building in the corner of 19th Street and I, issues this paper, which are nothing else than accounting entries, whoever gets those monies, let's imagine a poor African country, Burundi, they try to spend it, no one takes SDRs. So what they have to do is find someone that would buy those SDRs, which are funny money, and give them real money, say US dollars or yen or some real money. So imagine what would happen politically if we find out that the Federal Reserve is purchasing in the open market special drawing rights and issuing dollars, which is giving to Burundi in large amounts without the political system having agreed that that's the country that we want to assist. It would be politically impossible. So I don't think that internationally helicopter money would work. Each country would have to get its own helicopter and then drop its own money, and uh, then we'll see what happens. Well, it's a wonderful idea if you happen to be in the backyard at the time that the helicopter (laughs) passes over. What do you think now? It's always difficult to make any kind of presumption because we don't know at what point there might be a vaccine. That's one of the uncertainties that uh, nobody can possibly calculate at this point. And everybody, of course, uh, has a different idea about what might happen. But let's assume that it has happened. What do you think are the options for the economies of the future and for the lifestyles of the future? Are we all going to continue to do what you and I are doing now, for example, uh, and talk to each other from remote locations rather than uh, traveling back and forth to get together? Or are there going to be other kinds of changes like that as time goes on? Of course, I've thought about this a lot. And teaching two courses on the pandemic, it's a subject that I bring up with my students. And the answer, uh, Warren, is that I don't know. Having said that, I can speculate a little. The one thing for sure is that we're going to wash our hands more often. And maybe that's it. Okay, I canceled trips to Malaysia, to Iceland, to Europe, to Argentina, to Colombia. I canceled about 10 trips because of this. And I am really happy here at my house in West LA uh, looking at the trees growing in my backyard. But I don't know whether that's going to happen around the world. I think it's too early to know. 
we'll have to wait and see. You can have arguments that go in both directions. You can say people will not get on airplanes anymore. Or you can say people are so desperate now to go out and travel that the demand for airplane tickets is going to go through the roof because they're going to be what we economists call pent up demand. I think it's too early to know. And anyone who tells you that they know what's going to happen, I think they really are making that up. So what do you tell your students at uh, UCLA Anderson uh, who want to be leaders and perhaps even world leaders uh, if uh, uh, things go well for them? And what are they most interested in and what are they most concerned about? Well, I think that our students are concerned about which uh, the question that you asked last is a very important one, in which direction lifestyles are going to move. That's one concern. Another concern is whether this is going to result in high inflation. Now, that concern has one part of it that has to do with their own situation. So if you took a big loan to pay for your graduate studies and to get your MBA, and there is a big inflation, that inflation is going to carry up your wages, but your debt is going to stay put because you already signed the contract. And the interest rate on that debt is also put because it was in the contract. So a big inflation helps debtors, people who already have debts, as long as the inflation brings their salaries up with all prices. That also has a very important implication for the world of business, because when there is inflation, there is uncertainty, and then uh, investment uh, may be made in the wrong industries, and you may take uh, wrong decisions. That is a concern. Another concern, of course, is what will happen to the health sector and the health system in the U.S., whether this will accelerate a move towards a more comprehensive government-based system, be it the, a public option or even Medicare for all. Well, thank you so much. It's just been fascinating to talk to you about leadership, global and national, and about lifestyle and uh, about economics, both personal and governmental. Thanks so much, Sebastian Edwards. Warren, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you and be safe. And I hope to see you in person sometime soon. That would be wonderful. And uh, thank you again. This has been UCLA Anderson's podcast, How the World Works. I'm Armin Alney.